Sermon Republic post-series episode 9, Cleopatra, Queen of Egypt. As I said in post-series episode 3, I'm doing a short series focusing on women of the Roman world whose lives are intertwined with the death of the Roman Republic, and I was careful to not state that I was focused on Roman women because today's subject is not a Roman woman, but an Egyptian monarch. In this mini-series, we've already looked at Servilia, Fulvia, Octavia, and Livia. Cleopatra will be the first non-Roman woman examined, and the last woman I examined for this mini-series. And while Egypt was not considered the Roman world at the time of Cleopatra's birth, Rome would acquire Egypt shortly after her death. Like all other women I've covered, women in the ancient world have historically been written about less, so it's harder to know their true natures and characteristics, as well as we know men like Julius Caesar, Mark Antony, and Octavian. That said, there's an argument to be made that of all of these women, we know the most about Cleopatra, who was an intelligent polyglot, an ambitious woman, and ruthless politician. Born in 69 BCE, Cleopatra VII Philopator eventually became the Queen of Egypt, but she was not the designated princess that would peacefully ascend to the throne after her father, but rather, she would have to fight for the throne and control of Egypt. While she was born into a society with a lot of constraints, she had more agency and resources than the average Roman woman for much of her life. Funnily enough, Cleopatra would have relationships with Caesar, Antony, and Octavian, two of those relationships being quite intimate. My main source for this episode was Adrian Goldsworthy's book, Antony and Cleopatra, which was supplemented by some random Googling. This episode will cover Cleopatra's family history and her rise to power. We won't get to her death this episode, but next. With that said, let's start the show. Centuries before Cleopatra was born, in 305 or 304 BCE, her great ancestor, Ptolemy of Macedon, asserted himself as king of Egypt. Ptolemy had been a general and friend of the young Alexander the Great, who in 13 years marched from Macedon to India, obliterated the great Persian Empire, and controlled 2 million square miles of territory, which is more land than the Romans ever controlled. Easy to see why the Romans idolized the man. Having carved out a giant empire, succession was important. Yet when Alexander unexpectedly died at 32 years old, he did not have a viable designated adult heir. On his deathbed, when asked who he wanted to have control of the largest empire in the world, Alexander allegedly replied it should go to the strongest. In short order, this set off a violent power struggle between Alexander's advisors and generals. Let the games begin! Ptolemy was one of these generals, and he had become the satrap or governor of Egypt, an ancient land that Alexander the Great had taken from the Persians. Already governing Egypt, Ptolemy elevated himself to that of the king of Egypt. His dynasty would rule for centuries and war against fellow successor kingdoms, kingdoms started by other Macedonian generals, such as the Seleucids, who held much of the former Persian Empire. Yet the Ptolemaic dynasty would outlast all the others before eventually succumbing to Rome. That said, the Ptolemaic dynasty started strong. Ptolemy himself ruled for over 40 years and died in his 80s. Ptolemy I took pains to appeal to the Egyptian people to secure his throne. The Egyptians had welcomed Alexander the Great and the Macedonians as liberators for overthrowing their Persian overlords, although, in effect... Oh, I wouldn't say free. More like 
under new management. Ptolemy did take pains to appeal to Egyptian cults and religious leaders, offering them donations in exchange for religious legitimacy to secure his throne. Ptolemy was also the pharaoh, which held religious connotations to the Egyptians. Egypt was already an ancient land before Ptolemy came to rule it. Before him, there were apparently 31 previous dynasties that ruled Egypt. The first thought to have began in 3100 BCE. While the Macedonians effectively took Egypt by force and certainly had military might, Ptolemy needed to portray himself as an appealing and legitimate ruler so that he could rule a placid population rather than a rebellious one. Additionally, there were too few Macedonians and Greeks to run the kingdom's bureaucracy, so many Egyptians were recruited to work for Ptolemy. Ptolemy also took pains to transform Alexandria, the new city founded and named after Alexander the Great, into a center of Greek and Hellenic culture and founded the Library of Alexandria, which attracted scholars and intellectuals across the Mediterranean world. Alexandria would quickly become the largest city in Egypt with half a million residents, and by Cleopatra's day, wealthy Romans would go to vacation there. Macedonian and more generally Greek culture filtered into Egypt during the Ptolemaic dynasty, and many Greeks would migrate there. The city of Alexandria was more a Greek city than an Egyptian one. The Macedonians and Greeks were always outnumbered by the native Egyptian population. For the most part, the two cultures never fully integrated or hybridized in the hundreds of years of Ptolemaic rule, but stayed distinct. For one, Greeks had a leg up in society, and the royal family basically exclusively spoke Greek, and it was preferred to speak the Macedonian dialect of Greek. There was a separate legal system for Greek people and Egyptian people as well. Depending on one's legal situation, it may have been more preferable to seek justice through one of these systems over the other. For example, Egyptian laws gave more rights to women than Greek laws did. There existed an interesting gray area for the Egyptians who directly served the kingdom's administration for duties like collecting taxes. Some of these Egyptians learned to read, write, and speak Greek and took on Greek names for some public duties. It would have been impossible for the Ptolemies to control Egypt without the help of native Egyptians who themselves were willing to adopt Greek customs to get a leg up in the Ptolemaic regime. Cleopatra's family dynasty had started off strong and successful with Ptolemy I, but as the dynasty dragged on for a few hundred years, more and more problems arose. We are going to cover major highlights from these centuries, so settle in, because we literally have to talk about a dozen Ptolemies before we get to our Cleopatra. I will admit, it may be difficult to keep all the Ptolemies straight, because they basically only have a number to distinguish them, but possibly more important than the individual ruler, pay attention to the general themes you notice across multiple generations. Ptolemy I had been a relatively successful monarch, and his son Ptolemy II found similar success. He had a penchant for collecting books for the Library of Alexandria, and it's worth mentioning that the Ptolemies also styled themselves with various titles. Ptolemy I was also called Ptolemy Soter, or Ptolemy the Savior. His son Ptolemy II was Ptolemy Philadelphus, or Ptolemy Brother-Loving. Of course, this Ptolemy II was also sister-loving, because his second wife was his sister. And that is not a, a really Greek or Macedonian tradition, and while it wasn't unheard of in previous Egyptian dynasties, it wasn't the norm, but the siblings 
who are just 100% straight-up brother and sister, were compared to Greek gods like Zeus and Hera, and Egyptian gods like Isis and Osiris, divine siblings who were wed. And this added to the dynasty's divine associations, and if they kept marrying each other, it would ensure the throne stayed in their family, and that no outsiders could marry into wrestle power away. Not literally every royal marriage was between siblings, Cousins, aunts, and uncles are on the table too, and every so often an outsider may have married in, but for the most part, marriages were preferred to be between family members. Of course, as you may imagine, for several reasons, incest is a rickety foundation with which to build your dynasty, which would be crumbling by Cleopatra's day. You know what I mean? Like, right. I'm, not here to I'm not here to judge. He wants to do that. That's cool. <laughs> you know, most people call it incest, yeah. whatever. You call it hot. Fine. <laughs> Semantics. Anyway, Ptolemy II was succeeded by his son Ptolemy III Eugertes, or Ptolemy the Benefactor. Under Ptolemy III, Ptolemaic Egypt would reach its greatest territorial extent. Ptolemy III was succeeded by his son, Ptolemy IV Philopator, or father-loving. But not quite so brother-loving, Ptolemy IV murdered his brother and his supporters so that they could not try to take his throne. But after Ptolemy IV lost territory, members of his court would turn on him and kill him. This showcases two themes that will recur throughout Ptolemaic Egypt's history. One, while the royal court and Alexandrian nobles couldn't hope to marry into the royal family, they could plot and depose one monarch and back another so that they would rise in position with the new monarch. Additionally, given that the Ptolemies kept marrying each other, basically every member of the royal family had a very direct claim to the throne. Therefore, if they killed enough of their relatives, they could legitimately hold it. Additionally, under Ptolemy IV's rule, concerted rebellions started against him, which would recur about once a generation. Rival successor kingdoms like the Seleucids looked upon the Ptolemaic dysfunction with delight. The weaker the Ptolemies were, the easier it would be to acquire their territory and reclaim Alexander's empire all for themselves. Ptolemy V became king when he was five years old and therefore needed a regent to rule until he became of age. The aristocracy violently competed for the title and power. This Ptolemy would die at 28 years old, so the throne passed to his young children Ptolemy VI and Cleopatra II, royal siblings destined to be wed, who needed a regent as well. Again, this presented the opportunity for members of the royal court to seize power and influence. Later in life, Ptolemy VI would flee Alexandria, fearing that his brother, who would be named Ptolemy VIII, no, that is not a mistake, would kill him for the throne. Ptolemy VI went to the island of Cyprus, which was under Egypt's control. Thus, his brother, Ptolemy VIII, was clear to rule for a few years. Yet Ptolemy VIII was very unpopular. Both Ptolemy VI and VIII appealed to the Roman Republic for support. The Romans at this point were the dominant force in the Mediterranean, having defeated Hannibal of Carthage decades ago. Yet the Romans did not back a preferred monarch at this point in Egyptian history. Ptolemy VI eventually came out on top and defeated his brother. But rather than kill him, Ptolemy VI pardoned his brother and betrothed him to his daughter, Cleopatra III. Ptolemy VI would die in battle against the Seleucids. 
This left Ptolemy VI's son, Ptolemy VII, to ascend to the throne, ruling with his mother Cleopatra II. His uncle, Ptolemy VIII, returned to Alexandria, married his sister Cleopatra II, and had his nephew killed, taking the throne for himself. He is officially called Ptolemy VIII Eugertes II after Ptolemy III Eugertes I, but he was also nicknamed Ptolemy Fiscon or Fatty. Bang, boom, Why, hello, everybody! Now, I know a lot of you are probably asking yourself, why? Are you dressed in a plus-size suit? Because you're kind of doing Michael Klump. Uh, how do you know Michael Klump? Because it's your making fun of fat people character. I think of him as more like a monster. Now, incest and killing relatives at this point was an established family pastime for the Ptolemies, but Ptolemy VIII took this to a whole nother level. Ptolemy VIII was having an affair with his niece, Cleopatra III, and was a very unpopular monarch, so was ousted from Alexandria. He left the city with Cleopatra III and other family members. This left his sister and wife, Cleopatra II, to nominally rule Alexandria with her and Ptolemy VIII's son. Yet Ptolemy's son was with him, and so Ptolemy VIII would kill and dismember his son's body and send the remains back to his sister and his wife and the boy's mother. Because there was something wrong with society. See, you're always saying there's something wrong with society, but maybe there's something wrong with you. If it's me, then society made me that way. Ptolemy VIII would eventually invade and attempt to reclaim the throne, so his sister Cleopatra II appealed to the Seleucids for aid to fend off her brother. You must be truly desperate to come to me for help. Yet Ptolemy VIII would succeed and his sister would be ousted, yet they would somehow reconcile and Cleopatra II would return to rule with Ptolemy VIII and his other wife Cleopatra III and they must have had a great marriage counselor. Ptolemy VIII would rule Egypt on and off for 54 years with some interruptions and would, believe it or not, continue to kill and exile many opponents in his reign. When Ptolemy VIII died, his son Ptolemy IX, Soter II, took control of Egypt, ruling with the Cleopatras. He was a son of Cleopatra III. His brother, Ptolemy X Alexander, ruled Cyprus and would invade Egypt to take control. Ousted, Ptolemy IX essentially switched positions with his brother as he took control of Cyprus. Cleopatra III was a stronger political force and appears to have lorded over her son Ptolemy X, evident that her name appeared first in documentation. After six years of rule over her son, Cleopatra III died in 101 BCE, rumored to have been poisoned by him. This left Ptolemy X ruling with his wife Cleopatra Bernice. They would later be driven out of Alexandria by rebels, allowing his brother Ptolemy IX to return from Cyprus to rule. Ptolemy IX ruled for seven years until 81 BCE when he died. This allowed Ptolemy X's son, Ptolemy XI, to take the throne, who had his stepmother Cleopatra Bernice murdered. She was a popular figure in Alexandria, and Ptolemy XI would be killed by a mob a few weeks later. This finally leads us to one Ptolemy Twelfth, son of Ptolemy IX, and father of our main focus today, Cleopatra. The reason we briefly covered notable members of Cleopatra's dynasty is so that we could see a couple distinct dysfunctions that Cleopatra would have been aware of. One, incest never wins. 
two, Ptolemies should be wise to be anxious of their family members. There are several instances of Ptolemies ousting or outright killing each other. Third, the Alexandrian courts had an influence over who sat on the throne, even if they couldn't outright take it for themselves. Fourth, no female Ptolemy ever ruled in her own right. The Ptolemaic queens like Cleopatra II and Cleopatra III had a male husband or male sons that they ruled with, but no female Ptolemy had successfully ruled Egypt without a male Ptolemy by her side. Before we get into Cleopatra's father's life, it's worth taking a brief look at their neighbor, the Roman Republic, and its evolution over the course of the Ptolemaic dynasty and the dynasty's historic relationship with the Republic. If you're familiar with the main series of Death of the Roman Republic, a lot of this should sound familiar, yet from a different perspective. Predating Ptolemaic rule, Rome started out as a small kingdom in 753 BCE, one of many communities on the Italian peninsula. Almost 500 years later, by 264 BCE, the Romans were now a republic that ruled the Italian peninsula. By this point, this was after the death of Alexander the Great and Ptolemy II was ruling Egypt. Importantly, the Romans bested King Pyrrhus of Epirus, a distant relative to Alexander the Great and protege to Ptolemy I, who was caught up in the wars of the successor kingdoms like the Ptolemies. King Pyrrhus had been a rather successful commander, yet the Romans bested him nonetheless. This pleased the Ptolemies to see a rival taken down a peg. It was at this point that Ptolemaic Egypt officially made contact with the Roman Republic, and the two powers were on good terms. There were still several powers besides Roman Egypt around the Mediterranean, like Syracuse, Carthage, and Macedon, yet the Ptolemies would watch each of them be beaten down and eventually absorbed by the Romans. When Hannibal of Carthage invaded Italy, the Ptolemies tacitly helped the Romans by giving them grain, yet their rivals in Macedon would send troops to aid the Carthaginians. The Romans would eventually best Carthage and then sought vengeance against the Macedonians. Apparently, the Ptolemies had negotiated a temporary peace between Rome and Macedon, yet this was short-lived and the Romans would eventually invade and conquer Macedon. While the Ptolemies never had a direct confrontation with the Romans, the power dynamic was shifting. As Roman power waxed and they continued to expand and destroy powers like Carthage and Macedon, this left the Seleucids and the Ptolemies waning. Both Ptolemy VI and VIII would, at various points, appeal to the Romans to back them so that they could rule Egypt, although the Republic backed neither Ptolemy. By the time Cleopatra's father came to power in 80 BCE, Rome was the de facto hegemon of the Mediterranean, and by the time Cleopatra came to power, it was essentially undisputed. While the two powers had still never conflicted, the Romans did look at the kingdom quite greedily. Egypt was a famously rich and powerful kingdom that the Romans wanted control of, as Egypt would make a fine addition to my collection. Yet the Republic had not yet moved to take control of the kingdom. While Rome was a powerhouse, being able to absorb all of Egypt was not assured. Yet, even if the Romans could conquer Egypt, the Romans were probably more afraid that the general who conquered it and the governors who would govern it would become exceedingly wealthy and powerful and dominate the Republic, which was, of course, against the Republic's nominal values. This was the world that Ptolemy XII was to rule, both internally and externally unstable. Internally, his family could attempt to oust or kill him, and outside of Egypt, the Republic loomed large and could one day invade and oust him. So if you think you got it rough, just take a look at us. 
Ptolemy XII's rule will reflect many themes we've seen with his ancestors, and he would be a king who was ousted from power, yet eventually returned to Egypt. But uniquely, Ptolemy XII also had something his ancestors did not, purchased Roman support. Ptolemy XII styled himself as the new Dionysus, but was called Aludus by his subjects, Ptolemy the Oboe Player. He liked to play the instrument, which was not very kingly behavior. Ptolemy XII was married to his sister Cleopatra V, and early in his reign, rival family would try to oust him. The sons of one Cleopatra Selene would appeal to the Romans to back their play for the throne, but the Romans again declined to intervene in Egyptian politics. Ptolemy XII very actively appealed to Roman politicians throughout his reign that they should back him and allow him to keep his throne. He bought the support with an absurd amount of money, essentially bribing the Republic. And at this point in Roman history, there were a couple of key politicians that Ptolemy XII could focus on. His daughter, the future Cleopatra VII, and finally, our Cleopatra was born in 69 BCE, and in the same decade, the famous Roman general Pompey Magnus was conquering new territory for the Romans in the east, and was around Ptolemy XII's neighborhood. Fortunately for Ptolemy, Pompey didn't invade Egypt, but Ptolemy did send him 8,000 cavalry to support Pompey's conquests. Pompey would finally defeat and absorb the much-reduced Seleucid Empire, leaving the Ptolemies as the last great successor kingdom. Ptolemy also sent Pompey Magnus a gold crown so he could better emulate Alexander the Great, a hero to Pompey. In 65 BCE, Pompey's rival Crassus, commonly cited as one of the richest people of all time, was another influential Roman politician who schemed to annex Egypt and in the process make himself even richer. Crassus felt that he had legal backing as 20-ish years earlier, Ptolemy X left all of Egypt to the Republic in his will. The Romans did not immediately assert this right, but they did now. An up-and-coming politician named Julius Caesar supported this measure. Yet rival politicians denied this from happening, as the politicians involved in the absorption of the rich Egyptian kingdom would inevitably become much more powerful than those who were cut out. Pompey Magnus, Crassus, and Julius Caesar would scheme to consolidate power in the Republic and form the first triumvirate in 60 BCE. They pooled their wealth, fame, network of loyal followers, and influence to dominate the Republic's politics, whether any of them held official offices or not. All the money and resources Ptolemy had put into Pompey had paid off, and in 59 BCE, during the consulship of Julius Caesar, a law was passed naming Ptolemy XII friend and ally of the Roman people, essentially an endorsement that only he should sit on the throne. Ptolemy XII, of course, had to pay for this, 6,000 talents to Pompey and Julius Caesar, which may have represented half of Egypt's annual revenue. How much you want? Half. Ptolemy would have to severely raise taxes on his subjects to secure his throne. I, yeah, I just thought I spent like a bad amount of money. But he had succeeded. Until he didn't. A year later, in 58 BCE, the Republic annexed Cyprus, the island that for all of Ptolemaic Egypt's history had belonged to the Egyptians. Ptolemy didn't resist the Romans, and his brother, who had ruled Cyprus, killed himself. Ptolemy was already losing popularity for his high taxes, but this was untenable. He was perceived as weak for bowing to the Romans and allowing them to take Egyptian land and was ravaging Egypt to pay them. 
Members of the Alexandrian court supported Ptolemy's daughter, Bernice IV, and forced the king to abandon his throne. Leaving Alexandria with his life, he went to where he was welcome, Rome. Cleopatra would have been around 11 years old, and we don't know for sure whether she went with her father or stayed in Alexandria. Before getting to Rome, Ptolemy stopped in Cyprus, whose annexation was being overseen by the Honorable Cato the Younger. Cato advised Ptolemy to return to Egypt to make peace. If Ptolemy went to Rome, his countrymen would surely exact a high price. You will never find the more wretched hive of scum and villainy. Undeterred, Ptolemy continued to Rome and was housed by Pompey Magnus. Ptolemy tried to win over more Roman politicians, that the Republic should use its strength to reinstate him on the throne and promise riches to those who helped. Bernice similarly sent delegations to Rome and offered similar bribes to back her reign and negate the efforts of her father. Ptolemy would have some of these delegates killed. Several senators were eager to help the king and the promised riches and prestige that would follow a successful Egyptian campaign. But working against Ptolemy's machinations was an oracle's prophecy, which stated, according to Wikipedia, If an Egyptian king asked for help and Rome proceeded with military intervention, great dangers and difficulties would occur. The Romans being a superstitious people, I'm not superstitious, but... I'm, I am a little stitious. This prophecy stymied the execution of Ptolemy's restoration. But after three years, Ptolemy finally found an influential Roman who didn't care about vague and threatening prophecies, Aulus Gabinius. He was a governor in Syria, so he had an army near Egypt and was promised 10,000 talents should he restore Ptolemy Twelfth. Gabinius invaded Egypt in 55 BCE. He was explicitly breaking the law by invading a territory outside his governorship without the permission from the Senate, but in the tradition of dozens of Roman governors on trial before him, the punishment probably wouldn't be that harsh. You'll be shot for this? Nah, I don't think so. More like chewed out. I've been chewed out before. Gabinius's Romans made short work of Bernice's forces. Ptolemy Twelfth was restored, and he executed his daughter. Among Gabinius's forces was a young cavalry officer named Mark Antony, who had earned a reputation for his boldness and aggressive leadership during this campaign. Gabinius would return to Rome a rich man, but would be exiled for breaking the law. Funnily enough, this would spiral into Crassus replacing Gabinius as governor of Syria, whose failed Parthian invasion and death would destabilize the first triumvirate and the Republic. Gabinius's Roman soldiers would remain in Alexandria and were to stay for six years. These Gabinian soldiers were on Ptolemy XII's payroll as their presence ensured his rule. Again, Ptolemy taxed Egypt hard to pay back what he owed the Romans for his throne. Importantly, Ptolemy took care not to inflict too much taxation on the Alexandrians who were in his immediate vicinity, but imposed higher taxes on Egyptians farther from the city who would have a harder time organizing and rising up against him. Additionally, Ptolemy Twelfth certainly did not pay off all his debts to the Romans before he died and kept plenty of money for himself. I will not not be rich. We don't know much about Cleopatra's life as a young woman. While we know that she was the daughter of Ptolemy XII, 
We're not even certain who her mother was. It was probably a bit incestuous. Nonetheless, Cleopatra would have observed the struggle between her father and older sister and her sister's eventual execution. Cleopatra would have learned of and seen firsthand this Ptolemaic tradition of civil war, although the degree of Roman influence that her father introduced was a new variable. Cleopatra also seems to have been a very smart young woman, as evident by all the languages she could speak. Besides the Macedonian Greek the Ptolemies traditionally spoke, Cleopatra is credited with being able to speak Hebrew, Parthian, Latin, Medean, Arabic, Syriac, Troglodyte, and was the first Ptolemaic monarch to actually speak Egyptian. Cleopatra had two younger brothers and a younger sister, Arsinoe. Her father put in his will that after his death, Cleopatra and her younger brother were to rule Egypt, and the Romans were aware of this arrangement. Cleopatra was 18 when her father died in 51 BCE, and she was to inherit the throne with her 11-year-old brother, Ptolemy XIII. Her younger brother at this point was controlled by rivals in the Alexandrian court, masking themselves as the boy's advisors. She was aware of the internal challenges of rule, always mindful that a family member could kill her and take more power for themselves, backed by ambitious members of the Alexandrian court. Additionally, she inherited her father's unpopularity, who had heavily taxed Egypt for little gain for the average Egyptian. And there was the external challenge of Rome, who had become increasingly influential over Egyptian politics over the course of her young life. She also, of course, inherited her father's unpaid debts to the Romans. Just as we know that she was intelligent, we also know that Cleopatra was an ambitious young woman, as she appears to have had no intention to fulfill her father's will as he intended. She wanted sole control of Egypt without input from her brother and the advisors who controlled him. Cleopatra would unsuccessfully attempt to shut her brother out of power and style herself as the sole queen of Egypt. During this brief period, the young queen's Gabinian soldiers were called by the Republic to fight in Syria and fend off the Parthian raids in the wake of Crassus's failed invasion. But the Gabinian officers murdered the Romans who had ordered them to leave their cushy, well-paid assignment in Alexandria. In response, in an attempt to maintain good relations with the Republic, Cleopatra had these officers executed, which made her unpopular among the Roman soldiers assigned to support her rule. It took less than a year before Cleopatra was forced to acknowledge her brother as a rightful king of Egypt. If you've been paying attention to the years, you may have realized that just as Cleopatra was circling civil war in Egypt, the Romans were embroiled in their own civil war between former allies Julius Caesar and Pompey Magnus. In 49 BCE, after Pompey Magnus and the Optimates fled east and gathered strength against Caesar, Pompey's son Gnaeus Pompey arrived in Alexandria requesting support. Pompey had of course been friendly with Cleopatra's father, Ptolemy XII, and Pompey's son would only acknowledge the male Ptolemy XIII as the ruler of Egypt. Seeing her power waning, Cleopatra left Alexandria with her sister Arsinoe to raise an army and depose her brother. She hoped to, like her father, return and get rid of the illegitimate occupier. While she was raising an army first in Egypt and then in exile in Syria, her brother's royal army and Gabinian soldiers were the superior force. It was when Cleopatra was outside of Alexandria that a beaten Pompey Magnus and the remainder of his fleet arrived at the city. While Pompey had defeated Caesar at Dyrrhachium, Caesar had the greater victory at Pharsalus that crippled Pompey's forces. Well, well, well. 
How the turntables. Yet Pompey escaped with his life and now arrived in Egypt, a kingdom indebted to him to rebuild his strength for a final battle with Caesar. Pompey was welcomed to the Alexandrian shore by Achilles, an Alexandrian advisor to Ptolemy and Gabinian soldiers. Once ashore, he was stabbed to death by the Romans and Achilles. His family watched the men decapitate him and were then attacked by the Egyptian fleet with a few ships managing to escape. Ptolemy XIII's advisors Achilles, Pontius, and Theodotus looked at the situation and believed that even if they sunk all their resources into Pompey, he would still be defeated. Caesar was hot on his heels after Pharsalus and would arrive in Alexandria within days. If they supported Pompey, they would likely spend vast amounts of money and resources only to lose to Caesar. Then Caesar would surely punish them for supporting his enemy. Instead, they tricked Pompey to his death and would serve his head to Caesar on a platter. Literally. When Caesar arrived just three days later, Ptolemy XIII's advisor Theodotus presented Caesar with Pompey Magnus's severed head and signet ring. A gift. They had taken care of Caesar's Pompey problem and could expect favor and support. I made a crazy risk with gamble. It's about to pay off. And none of them anticipated Caesar's actual reaction. Holy God, what are you this showing me? His head. Come on! Caesar refused to look at Pompey's head, then wept. Possibly a brilliant act of political theater, Caesar was outwardly furious that the foreign Egyptians assassinated his former son-in-law and ally. Besides this, a Roman senator was murdered by foreigners, an act that could not be taken lightly. He had not brought his full strength in his quick pursuit of a weakened Pompey, but he took his two legions and paraded them through the streets of Alexandria. Ptolemy and his advisors were now quite nervous at Caesar's presence, and to their advantage, average Alexandrians were angry to apparently be occupied by the Romans. Individual Romans caught wandering the streets were likely to be murdered by mobs. Caesar knew he didn't have the forces to control the city of hundreds of thousands, but at this point needed Egypt. He had tens of thousands of troops whose loyalty was ensured with the promise of payment, including very recent enemy Pompeians who had just turned to his side for cash. Now was the time to collect the Ptolemaic debt to him, because the money and wealth in Egypt was necessary to stabilize and rebuild the recently very destabilized Roman Republic. Ptolemy's advisors granted Caesar and the Romans refuge in the royal quarters of Alexandria, and the mood was quite tense. Nominally, they were allies, even if Caesar was furious for the death of Pompey and demanding that Ptolemy XIII owed him 17.5 million denarii that his father had promised him. Because I spent like bad, bad amount, amount of money, money I know. It. Yeah, I spent a bad amount of money on it. What's a bad amount of money? It's like the worst amount. Caesar also said he would execute upon Ptolemy XII's will that Ptolemy XIII and his sister Cleopatra should both disband their forces and make peace. Alexandria was now a powder keg. This is a powder keg, and Cleopatra's the match. And it was at this point that Cleopatra decided to make her triumphant return. Ptolemy XIII's advisors wanted her far from the city, so she had to sneak in. 
So the myth goes, one late night as Caesar was working in the royal palace, he was presented with a mysterious carpet. He was surprised when he unrolled it to reveal a nubile Cleopatra and... In reality, Cleopatra was likely secretly corresponding with Caesar before they met, as Caesar would be less receptive to mysterious packages as he was surrounded by hostels. So Caesar was likely expecting her delivery in a laundry bag the night they met. Still, she had to sneak into her family home. Analyzing the situation from the 21-year-old Cleopatra's perspective, she and this Julius Caesar each had something the other needed. Caesar was upset at her brother, had not endorsed his sole rule, and was very likely suspicious at the intentions of the king's advisors, Achilles, Pontius, and Theodotus. Caesar needed an Egypt that was friendly to him, that would give him the resources he needed, and Cleopatra could offer that if she could turn him to her side. She also likely knew of Caesar's reputation as a philanderer and the numerous affairs with powerful women he was rumored to have. In return, Caesar, who defeated Pompey Magnus, the man who defeated the Seleucid Empire, could back Cleopatra and put her securely on the throne. Politics making for strange bedfellows. Hey, so listen, I was thinking that it might be a good idea if you and I formed an alliance. I think an alliance might be a good idea, you know, help each other out. Do you want to form an alliance with me? Absolutely, I do. Good. Good. Excellent. Okay. The renegade Roman general and Egyptian queen struck a deal that night. I made a crazy risk to gamble. It's about to pay off. And also... Cleopatra made her presence known the next morning, infuriating Ptolemy XIII, who was incapable of exchanging the same diplomatic favors as his sister could. We have been hoodwinked, bamboozled, led astray, run amok, and flat out deceived. Caesar reinforced his mandate that Cleopatra and Ptolemy XIII would rule Egypt and added that he would give Cyprus back to the Egyptians, allowing their siblings Arsinoe and Ptolemy XIV to rule the island. Yet, Ptolemy XIII and his advisors did not find this so agreeable. One of them, Achilles, left the royal quarters and raised the royal army to siege Caesar. This led to the very odd episode that was Caesar, Cleopatra, and the Romans trapped inside the royal quarters along with Ptolemy XIII, the royal family, and the Alexandrian court. Nominally, Achilles was attacking them all, but would truly have been targeting Caesar and Cleopatra. The courtesy of your hall is somewhat lessened of late. Inside the quarters, the occupants played along, and it surprises me that apparently the Egyptians nor Romans tried to assassinate each other. During the day, Caesar and the Romans would defend themselves from Egyptian attacks, and by night, Caesar would party and make love to Cleopatra. The teenage Arsinoe, Cleopatra and Ptolemy's sister, would slip out of the palace and kill Achilles then take control of his forces and continue the siege against Caesar. She was aided by her advisor, Ganymede. They smartly cut off Caesar's fresh water supply, but at this point, Caesar's reinforcements were starting to sail into Alexandria, providing relief. As the siege continued, the Alexandrians were growing displeased with Arsinoe and Ganymede's rule, and asked that Ptolemy XIII lead them. 
Ptolemy XIII begged Caesar not to be released to the masses, yet Caesar allowed the boy to go. Ptolemy XIII then turned his sister Arsinoe into his subordinate. Rather than end the siege against Caesar, Ptolemy continued it and apparently feigned wanting to stay with Caesar in the palace as an ally. Of course, Caesar may have similarly played the boy and now could justifiably execute him for betraying him. So you have chosen death. Eventually, the Roman reinforcements were too numerous for Ptolemy's royal army, and they would be defeated. Ptolemy XIII would drown in the Nile River at age 15, fleeing the Roman forces. Pontius was dead, and Theodotus was ran out to Syria, where he was later killed by Brutus. Arsinoe would be made a prisoner, and Cleopatra would officially marry her 12-year-old brother, Ptolemy XIV, who was younger, more easily controlled, and cut off from influential advisors in the court, allowing Cleopatra to effectively rule on her own. With Caesar's victory, Cleopatra had consolidated the power of Egypt in herself and can now give Caesar the money he was promised. We did it! We did it, Joe! It's also worth mentioning during this conflict, the splendid Library of Alexandria was partially burned and damaged by Caesar. Oh my god! We're having a fire! But it did not all go up in smoke as classically thought. The two celebrated their victory with a pleasure cruise for a few months down the Nile River. Cleopatra was introduced as the undisputed queen of Egypt across the kingdom, and Caesar finally took a vacation after a decade of fighting in the Gallic Wars, his Civil War, and this Alexandrian War. Cleopatra brought with them enough champagne to fill the Nile. Caesar would eventually leave Egypt to finish his Civil War and to rebuild the Republic. Cleopatra was pregnant when he left, and she would give birth to Ptolemy Caesarian. Cleopatra would visit Rome in 46 BCE, a year after Caesar had departed. Caesar housed the queen and her brother-husband Ptolemy XIV in one of his houses, and assumingly met his son, Ptolemy Caesarian. Ptolemy Caesarian would have an interesting relationship with Rome because despite Caesar never officially acknowledging that Ptolemy Caesarian was his son and that his mother, Cleopatra, was not a Roman and therefore he was not a Roman citizen, entitled to any of Caesar's estate, the fact that he was perceived as the son of Julius Caesar and a foreign queen was exploited by various politicians for various reasons. On this visit in 46 BCE, Caesar was a consul and soon to be dictator for life. Even as consul, Caesar had no living rivals to match his wealth and prestige and could reform the Republic as he saw fit. He had also recently celebrated four successive triumphs, including one over enemy Egyptians. Cleopatra's sister Arsinoe was paraded around Rome as a captured prisoner, as it was custom to parade foreign and subjugated rulers and sometimes execute them. Female prisoners like Arsinoe were never executed, but nonetheless, the general populace found this parading of the young Arsinoe somewhat distasteful as she was a sympathetic figure. Now she's going to make the Disney face. Her lip is gonna quiver and her eyes will flutter, but they won't ever actually close, but do not feel sorry for her. Arsinoe would spend the rest of her life at the Temple of Artemis in Ephesus in modern Turkey.
In 46 BCE, on this visit to Rome, the Senate, at the direction of Caesar, recognized Cleopatra and Ptolemy XIV as the rightful rulers of Egypt. Cleopatra would be backed by Roman soldiers. Cleopatra got her Roman legitimacy and all the security that came with it, and Caesar had an ally in Egypt with whom he could share resources and needn't worry about a rival that threatened his control. They offered each other mutual stability in their political systems. On this trip to Rome, Cleopatra also brought Sosigenes, an Alexandrian astronomer who helped Julius Caesar sort out Rome's out-of-sync 355-day calendar, ushering in the Julian calendar. You know, I'm something of a scientist myself. Octavius knows what I can do. Finally secure on her throne, Cleopatra can now do more classic Ptolemaic queen activities, like giving money to religious temples in exchange for religious legitimacy, rather than worry about defending her position. She still wasn't necessarily a popular figure, as she and her family had very recently bled the Egyptian people dry with high taxes to pay the Romans for security. Wanna know the worst part? That you spent a bad amount that of money. That I spent a bad amount of money. In these early years, Egypt struggled through a famine that had been exacerbated by the fact that people had little money from high taxes, to which Cleopatra opened the royal reserves of grain to the public. Cleopatra had enjoyed a few years of undisputed, unchallenged rule. She enjoyed a fruitful relationship with the most powerful man in Rome, as her stable Egypt that shared its resources with the Republic fit Julius Caesar's ambitions. Thus, Caesar was incentivized to keep Cleopatra on the throne. And as a bonus, they occasionally hooked up. We cannot pretend that this didn't happen. Or that it won't happen again. You think it's gonna happen again? You tell me. Cleopatra had also been in Rome on March 15th, 44 BCE, once again staying at one of her lover's houses. Julius Caesar was soon to leave for military campaigns against the Dacians, then a grand invasion of Parthia. He had been made dictator for life and would be away from Rome for several years. Caesar had not been planning to meet with the Senate on March 15th, as his wife had seen ill omens in the morning sacrifices. I'm not superstitious, but... I'm, I am a little stitious. But Caesar's friend, Decimus Brutus, convinced him that he needed to go to the Senate. Once there, he was stabbed to death. The conspiracy of about 60 senators was led by Brutus and Cassius, who at the most idealized level understood that the Republic was falling under the control of one man, Caesar, who was king in everything but name, antithetical to the values of the Republic. My allegiance is to the Republic, to democracy! Cleopatra may have also had a small influence in Caesar's demise. While Caesar had, on the surface, rejected becoming a king, as Mark Antony offered it to him at the festival of Lupercalia, some conspirators likely looked with suspicion at Caesar's relationship with the foreign queen Cleopatra, a woman who had absolute power over her state, and claimed that her child, Tele Amy Caesarian was Caesar's son. Even if he outwardly denied it, Caesar could have harbored kingly ambitions inspired by his time with Cleopatra. 
while Cleopatra's proximity and relationship with Caesar likely had a small influence in the conspirators' minds to assassinate him, she definitely wasn't the primary reason. Examining the conspirators' motivations at the most cynical level, Caesar needed to be dead to advance their political ambitions. Caesar, as dictator for life, outperformed all of them in the traditional game of politics and prestige, and after Caesar was dead, they would be the heroes who restored the Republic. They would suddenly be very popular and very electable. D. Demonstrate your value. Thus, on the Ides of March, Cleopatra, present in Rome, saw her security evaporate. What would she do now? And that's what we'll cover next episode. If you're interested, you can follow the show on Twitter at D-O-T-R-R-Pod. Come follow, and please, rate the show on Apple Podcasts if you haven't. Also, if you want to listen or re-listen to main series Death of the Roman Republic episodes, this episode draws from Chapter 1, Chapter 13, Chapter 14 the most, which will cover the rise of the Republic, Caesar's civil war with Pompey, and the Ides of March. With all that said, friends, Romans, countrymen, I hope you enjoyed the show. Oh.